Hello and welcome to the Winners Never Quit podcast. Start your week the right way with a laugh and a dose of motivation. Listen to the stories of our guests, learn from their experiences and how they have built a winner's mindset. Hosted by myself, Jack Jarvis. And if you could like, follow or subscribe to the podcast, I would really, really appreciate it. Today I am joined by my good pal, Angus Collins. Now Angus has four ocean rowing crossings under his belt, two of the Atlantic, one of the Indian and one of the Pacific Ocean, setting a number of world records along the way. He now specializes in ocean rowing coaching and has successfully helped over a hundred teams complete an ocean row and he's never lost one at sea yet. Uh, and I'm sure he won't. He joins me now. Angus, how's it going, buddy? Yeah, really good. Really good. Thank good to have you on the pod, intro. mate. Mate, yeah. no, thank you for having me and thank you for coming on the podcast. Right, we start every podcast the same, mate. How do you define winning in your life? This is actually something that I've been working on in the back of my mind for quite a few years because it's a hard one. In the ocean rowing world, we've talked about it a number of times that getting the money is really the hard thing. And... Therefore, my my um, view on building a campaign has always been about trying to win the race or trying to win or get the world record. So our image has always been about winning, winning, winning. And I've always defined that as, yeah, time, getting there as quickly as possible. But for me personally, that's actually the least important thing on any of my crossings. Like my most successful crossing in my eyes was my least successful crossing in terms of crossing time. And that was with Ocean Reunion. So that was the first time I rode the Atlantic. We were three, a team of four, three rowers and then Joe. Um, and we were yeah, four best mates. And we won the race. We didn't get any world records. By far the best experience that I've ever had. And I'd say that was a complete, like, we put everything together to have a winning team. Uh, awesome campaign great guys never had a crossword literally from the two and a half years before we started the road to now um i'd say we've like completely nailed that like team ethos but as i say it was like in terms of guinness book of records and all of that like it was the least successful crossing and then other crossings that i've had and hopefully no one from any of these teams <laughs> that i'm running with will, and think i'm saying anything bad from them but the ocean re- reunion with four guys that Gus and I had known each other since the age of seven Joe and I since 13 14 Jack and I later on in life but like we're really really close and the the other teams that we 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 had to build the teams as opposed to Ocean Reunion we're literally like brothers coming together um and that meant we just had to kind of almost force what winning winning meant to the team as opposed to it just coming naturally yeah that really comes across in the documentary yeah um if anyone wants to listen um sorry watch it it's on youtube and you can see how well gelled and how your team dynamic is absolutely perfect um and i won't ruin the documentary for other people and maybe another team in there don't do so well and they fall apart you can't that has to come naturally yeah you know you can't force it that's why i actually really struggled so i then rode the atlantic a year later don't get me wrong, I had an awesome team. Like Jason was like a brother in adventure with me. Alex Simpson I'd go to see 100 times over. Matt got really well with, but we just didn't have that that real like yeah, brotherhood. And like you must have this from your military experience. Like, so you're just like, there are people that you would do shit for that you wouldn't normally consider. And that was my ocean reunion. And then I was, I was searching for that when I did my Atlantic the second time over because we essentially were told to go out and do it again, or I was asked to go do it again with Jason um, and try and win the race and get the world record. And then when we did the Pacific, exactly the same thing, build a team to get the world record. And we succeeded in both of those. And essentially, yeah, we won what we were going out to aim to do. But did I feel as um, complete as I did after the Ocean Reunion crossing? Absolutely not. And did I do I consider them as my biggest like achievements and uh, yeah number one standout achievements not at all no we'll, we'll get into more detail about all of those crossings but can we roll it back tell me about your childhood and how that led you to becoming this great adventurer because uh, i've not even adventurer. talked about the um namib 
uh, crossing as well. We need to get to that. Yeah, Namib, Papua New Guinea. Yeah, yeah there's been some wild ones. Um, so I was born in Guam. Um, near the Philippines? Yeah, kind of near nothing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right, so nearest Japan, Philippines. Oh, okay. um, it was an American naval base. My parents were scuba diving instructors out there. And my grandpa was a world champion sailor. My uncle was an America's Cup sailor. As I said, my parents were scuba diving instructors. Like, as a family, we're just way better on the water than yeah. we are on dry land. <laughs> you were destined to be in yeah. that sea. Um, and then, e- even now, like, one of my cousins was a Royal Marine, the other one was working super yachts. Like, we're, we just love water. So, from a really young age, I've always said that I wanted to work in adventure. I didn't really know what that meant. Like, you know, when you're like nine, ten years old, it's like, I want to work in, I want to yeah. be an astronaut or whatever. <laughs> but I was like, I'm going to work in outdoor adventure. But yeah, I didn't really know what that meant. I just was watching stuff like Bruce Parry, The Tribe, and just thought, I, I want to do that. Yeah, I want a bit of that in my yeah. life. Um, but I hadn't really thought about the stepping stones that you have to, to be Bruce Parry on BBC. You have to have done some stuff before. You can't just be some like bloke who just rocks up to the BBC and says, can you chuck me in a jungle and... Yeah feed me a load of trust me frogs. i'll make it yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so then yeah all of our holidays of like as families we never did anything that normal mum mum basically went on a gap year age 17 and came back 15 years later with me um <laughs> so she's got an adventurous streak and all of our holidays were just all a bit weird and wonderful like we, we went to Guatemala but we wouldn't stay in a hotel we're going to stay with local people in the middle of the mountains and that was very normal for us so really lucky that like yeah being in the outdoors and being in weird and wonderful places was normal um I'm not traditionally that sporty like I love sport but if you go and talk to my ocean reunion guys that I was at school with I was always B team rugby B team everything because I just didn't I didn't like I, I love sport I didn't like putting in, in the extra effort not like Gus Barton then an absolute yeah, yeah, thoroughbred yeah. you exactly. know exactly like he, he, he thrives for pain um, whereas that never appealed to me it's funny you know Dun- obviously you know Duncan Roy um, okay. he always gets a shout out on this podcast he says I don't understand Angus he never he says how much he hates the concept too but when we were in the Pacific, mate, could he put some power down? So yeah, I'm yeah. not sure why. It's, I'm actually this. He was blown away. He was like, "I don't understand how he does it." <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I, I appreciate that, Dunk. Thank you very much. And it's, <laughs> it's true that I do hate the erg. Yeah. But yeah, it's been like that the whole way through my life. Like I, I hate training, absolutely hate it. And that's probably not something I should be doing as an ocean rowing coach, telling yeah. people that I don't go on the erg. But I, I am actually turning that around now. I'm training for the Paris Marathon. I'm putting in some miles. Yeah, I've seen. So I'm happy. Um, but yeah, g- um, so yeah, I just I was always wanting to work in adventure. Didn't know what that meant. Went to university, wasted my time there. And then came out, I was actually working in recruitment, financial crime and compliance recruitment in the financial sector. Thrilling. If there's anyone in that sector listening to this, and I doubt there is, <laughs> hell me, that was so boring. And like, you're essentially selling an unreliable product, which is a human, and those humans have a really boring job and they want to talk to you the whole time. And like, oh, do you want to go out for lunch and talk about that role? And I'm like, no, I don't want to talk to you guys. So, you know, after a year, I realized I need to get out of that. My idea was basically that I'd go in and you can make fairly good money. So the idea was that I'd make good money and then use that money to go on adventures. And then I realized after a year, I was like, this is, I can't do that. I'm not that kind of person that can just work for 90% of my life doing something I hate to celebrate over a 10, ten year period. So um, I bet, were there people in that industry that were trapped in there? Big time. Because oh, yeah. you hear a lot of people say that, you know, I'm just going to do it for like two years, get my money and get out. Yeah, yeah. But then you get the brand new BMW on finance, you got the big house. Yeah. And all of a sudden you, you have to sustain that yeah. life that you've become accustomed to. Yeah. Um and yeah, my cousin who worked on Super Yachts exactly the same thing. You get a load of people there, it's like, yeah, I'm just gonna do this for like five years, buy a house, get out, and then sixty years old, slight coke addiction. <laughs> living in What on super yachts? <laughs> nah, nah, don't believe you. Don't believe you, Angus. Um so yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, to meet people like that. So then that was when Charlie, um, Charlie Pitcher, who was my uncle, he approached me and we had been 
he had already rode the Atlantic twice at this stage and I'd kind of helped him out with a little bit with some training and we're not training just basically boat maneuvers and he just said oh I think we can turn this Rannick adventure into an actual company um at that stage it was actually we had Rannick ocean adventure and ocean and Rannick adventure so we we're going to be a land-based um adventure company up in Scotland and then an ocean rowing company down in Essex yeah. and that's when we started building these ocean rowing boats um and that's I suppose was like when I f- first got into like being in the adventure industry professionally other rather than just doing stuff for fun before then I had we had been to Papua New Guinea and walked through Papua New Guinea which was wild but all of that was holiday adventure as opposed to professionalism nice I've been doing stuff like walking through the jungle of Brunei and you're like yeah I did it for a holiday and I was like I did it for 28 days of work and it was horrendous. My feet looked like Swiss cheese at the yeah, end of it. Yeah, it's grim out there. Oh, yeah, it really is. Um, just before we touch on your Indian Ocean right yeah, crossing, yeah. what would be any advice for someone that is looking to get out of a job they hate and try and do something they love and make a living from it? Um, it's so easy to sit here and to say you've just got to commit and you've got to do it and it will change your life. Like, easy to say that really really hard to do and I think something that I didn't really do out of choice but something that helped me actually when I left Rannick later on but what allowed me to move industries or change jobs was the fact that I basically had a really low overhead lifestyle and you kind of touched on it earlier like as soon as you've got that BMW on finance and you've got that big house on the mortgage and all that kind of stuff like it's really hard to then take that risk um, so if you could just really minimise what you are spending and what what who, or any dependables and things that were relying on you to be working it's really important like living that minimalist lifestyle so that you are actually you or you can afford to have some freedom yeah and say cool i know i can afford six months off a year off whatever it is um and then i think if you can manage that you can then realize like cool i've now got no excuse other than to put all my effort into something that i really want to do yeah and it is a grind as well. I think yeah. nowadays people see the quick success, but they are one-offs. Like the majority yeah. of people like graft. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And then it's they're only in the press for that probably what, that six months. They've probably been grafting six years before that. Yeah. And I think personally, yeah, you just need to grind it. And you hear people like, oh, I'm going to start a business or something. Can they do it for you know a few months and it doesn't you know make a millionaire? And they're like, oh, I'll just sack it. Yeah, uh, it does my head in. Like all that you see it all over social media, how to make money fast. And yeah, there are ways to do it, but like don't don't look at those people and think that's the only way of doing it. Yeah, hundred percent. Absolutely crazy. And also, don't just chase it for that reason. Like, don't get me wrong. I'd love to earn more money than I'm earning now. But I'm in the ocean <laughs> rowing community, and there isn't a lot of money in it. But I meet cool people every single day. I'm talking to cool companies the whole time. Get cool concepts of expeditions coming up the whole time. Like. There, there's a lot more out there than earning a lot of money. 100%. And I think if you then nail what you really want to do, then the money will come eventually anyway. Yeah. Um, so the Indian Ocean. Yeah. Because that is... that PTSD. is Yeah. To anyone who doesn't know anything about ocean rowing, people tend to do the Atlantic first just because it's a bit more predictable with the weather systems. So how did that... People don't normally go Indian first. No, so... Um, that's like doing anal on your first time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's an easy way that everyone will understand. Oh, yeah, it nearly did turn into that as well. <laughs> I'll come into that story. Um, so I was at Rannick Adventure. We had been working with a guy called Jamie Sparks, who had, he was my age and had taken a year out of uni to row the Atlantic. Put a really cool campaign together, him and his mate Luke. Rode the Atlantic. I think they were then the youngest pair to row the Atlantic. Um, and Jamie then finished, tried to go back to university early because he basically had six months and didn't know what to do. And uni said, no, you've got to take the full year off. So he was there scratching his ass, not knowing what to do, and approached Rannick and said, look, I've got six months off. What should I do? We looked at winds, currents, and... Um, basically the only option was Indian Ocean so Jamie then he actually asked Charlie first I hate this because he yeah asked my uncle before me I love that by the way 
Yeah, the only option <laughs> for that six months. The only thing that he could do was row the Indian Ocean. <laughs> there was literally nothing. His hands were tied, mate. He, well, you know, he had to. Um, he approached Charlie. So his mum, who's a lovely lady, she basically said, Jamie, the Indian's too gnarly for you. You need a skipper on board. And so that's why they approached Charlie. But we were kind of a year into setting up Raddock and I didn't really know what I was doing. So Charlie was like, look, I need to stay in the UK and look after the company. Angus, you're going to go row the Indian Ocean. Actually, he told Jamie, Angus will row the Indian Ocean. I get a phone call from Jamie and he's like, oh, I've just spoken to your uncle. Sounds like you're rowing the Indian Ocean. I hadn't even had a conversation with Jamie about this at that stage. I was like, okay, all right. Straight, straight, yeah, that. straight on the blower. Too. I'm getting paid leave for this. Yeah, all right, <laughs> Uncle. Yeah, come on, Charlie. Yeah, I wish. Um, and then, yeah, so I was signed up for rowing the Indian. Um, we had another guy, Alex, who I'd never met before. Um, and then Hamish, who was actually coincidentally a guy that I went to school with up until the age of twelve. Hadn't seen him since. Um, he was on the team, and we basically had, I think it was basically three months to put a whole campaign together get a boat down to Australia, which is remarkably hard. Running a campaign for the Atlantic's hard enough. Doing the Indian Ocean, you've got all the problems of importing food into Australia and just Australians being Australians, and it was just extremely hard work. So we yeah, managed to pull that together. Left right at the tail end of the season. Um, so, sorry, man, let's just roll it back. So when you had three months to put the campaign together, that was... Yeah. That was... March, March, yeah, we started because we've we've spoken. We'll speak a little bit yeah. more. So the season to row the Indian is March to um, March to. You can go up until end of July, August. I wouldn't want to though. Yeah. So um, so really cutting it fine. Really cutting it fine. Um, and we were working with a weather router, a guy called Tony. Um. And we would look at all the charts. And basically, normally you'd leave from a place called Geraldton, which is a few hundred miles north of Perth. We, because of the winds, the tail end of the season was kicking in, we wanted to go a little bit further north and to find an area where there's the smallest continental shelf. So the continental shelf is basically like a shallow area around Australia that creates really sharp, big waves. Um, so we went from this place, Exmouth. And it was just wild. So we had... Jamie on board, who was who had rowed the Atlantic. I had built ocean rowing boats. I had trained people, but when I say train, I, I use the word training as opposed to coaching because I was literally, I knew how a raymarine chart plotter worked because I had sailed before. I knew how to row because I'd rowed from my sailing boat to the fish and chip shop before. <laughs> like I, had, I wasn't a professional in any any way, but somehow Jamie and I managed to persuade his mum that if I was on board, I would be classified as an experienced member of crew. Um. We had Alex on board who had sailing experience and was a rower and Hamish who had no experience in anything other than he was a good ultramarathon runner, which is really, <laughs> really useful. Um, and we, it was... Oh, was now, nah, mate, but I can do a really good, uh, you know, <laughs> 26 miles, mate. Yeah. Um, and I remember leaving, leaving Exmouth after a whole load of things. I could talk about it for hours, just what went wrong because we were basically just buying this boat um off a team of professional polo players who was it an R45? No, it wasn't. This was so it was a one of the last roster boats that was built. Okay, um, boat called Tiny Dancer. Love it. She's big. A, she has a beauty. <laughs> I love Elton John as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yes, we bought that boat, but then we basically sorry background noise with the coffee machine on a white. That will be it. That'll be it. There we go. Oh, oh no, it's not. What model is that? Because it does make a cracking cappuccino, by the way. The DeLonghi Magnifica. Yeah, if you're listening to this, anyone that works at DeLonghi, all right, I want to cut. <laughs> all right, you're sponsoring this episode. They're great. Um, just come out with a new one. Oh, there you go. Plug, buy it. Um, <laughs> what's it? So, yeah, sorry. Lots so, went wrong. Yeah, just more, just admin. Um, so we had to, we bought the boat. We were sponsored by Fortnum & Mason's. Um, of course, you're sponsored by Fortnum <laughs> Masons. Um, oh, me, GW Rail Freight, <laughs> Angus Collins, Fortnum and Masons, darling. Um, kindly supported by Fortnum Masons, who actually the last thing that they sponsored was 
Shackleton going down to the South Pole. Yeah. They sponsored him for the all the food for his expedition down to the South Pole. They hadn't sponsored an expedition since. Um, and then we got them on board, which was incredible. Yeah, great sponsor to have. Yeah. Um, they did send us one of their hampers, but it arrived a couple of days late. So there's someone in Exmouth that really enjoyed that. <laughs> um, but yeah, got sponsored by them. So we had to, the deal was that we had to have the boat in their kind of teal, greeny, blue colour. But we only got told that just that literally the day we were shipping the boat. So there's normally you go and get someone to professionally wrap, wrap the boat. It, yeah. I was sitting there with a spray gun, a spray can, <laughs> spray painting the boat. <laughs> then we're putting the logos on in the water in Australia and they're all over the place and trying to buy food in Australia was a nightmare and then sheepskin like we thought we were buying sheepskin to sit on but actually we were buying literal like skin that had come off a sheep that was still wet and gutty and (laughs) just all these things that happen when you try and do a campaign in three months yeah and then we left and it it was a relief leaving so like cool at least we don't have to do any more of that crappy admin that the four of us were just awful at um and then I remember thinking, shit, we're taking on the Indian Ocean. We've got Jamie, who's got some experience, and then the rest of us are just absolute rookies. Um, and uh, But I had kind of sold it to other people that I was already an ocean rowing professional. I'm like, I've done nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I knew nothing. <laughs> um, and it was wild, absolutely wild. So we talk about the admin, but what makes the Indian Ocean so hard from, like, a say, if you're going to sail across you know, the element side of it rather yeah. than just the ocean. So road. I'm going to compare it to the Atlantic because I think it's the easiest thing to do. Um, and the majority of people are doing the Atlantic and hope this hopefully doesn't take anything away from anyone doing the Atlantic. But the Atlantic, generally, you've got a season where you've got trade winds and the winds, waves and currents are generally going in the same direction. So if you go from east to west in the mid-Atlantic, from November to April, you're going to have winds behind you over 80% of the time. Well, I look at this, um, you know, the French guy that died the yeah. year I went. Yeah. Um, I can't remember his name. Rest in peace, big man. Um, but he had done the Atlantic a few years before in a barrel. That's right, yeah. Nine, literally, nine yeah. foot circumference barrel. Yeah, just literally got in a barrel and 120, left from the Canaries and 127 days later, just made landfall. Yeah. Wild. <laughs> that is so, nuts, isn't it? Yeah, it, but that what the reason I say that crazy. the reason I say that is because just to show that you would sort of end up that way, yeah. even if you can't propel yourself. There's so much I want to say about that, but I'm not going to. Oh, it <laughs> does when there, when there are rowing teams that have been out there for 120 days, it does make you wonder what the hell they were doing. Yeah, I was wait, I was 111 days. <laughs> yeah, but you did the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. completely different. Yeah. Um, okay, so yeah, that's the Atlantic, and generally, once you leave the Canaries you've got deep water the whole way until you get to the Caribbean seaside. Whereas the Indian Ocean, you can have waves coming up from the Southern Ocean. So anywhere like basically south of Australia, you've got cold water waves coming up from the south. You've got winds coming from east to east, northeast. And then you've got currents coming from the northeast and southeast. So you very rarely have all three systems helping you whereas in the atlantic generally you'll have all three wind wave and current helping you um so you almost have to like tack your way across the indian ocean You're like okay today we'll go with the waves tomorrow we'll go with the wind tomorrow the day after we'll go with the waves dependent on what is the predominant factor at that time if you've got huge like 40 foot swell coming from the south you've just got to go with that but the wind will be coming across the side of you um so that makes that really really hard and then really wet as well, I can imagine. Really wet and cold at the beginning. Um, but then you also have reefs. Um, and there was really good. Sorry, I've got it's all right. a dog attack. Um, <laughs> back off. Yeah. Um, so Angus was probably say he's got two. Who's this other dog? So he's he, got one he, dog called Lolo. Bo. Yeah, we've got Bo, which is the big one. We basically thought Lolo was on his way out, so we got Bo. But Lolo's make it made a massive recovery. So now we've got two dogs. <laughs> Love it. Um yeah, Indian Ocean you've got some reefs. big reefs as well. Um and there was a 
wasn't it a Volvo race? I think I think it was a Volvo Ocean Sailing race where there was a team that basically hadn't zoomed in enough onto their chart plot and they're flying at 30 knots and just in the middle of the Indian Ocean just smashed into a huge reef. And we were just, we were stuck just in between that reef and another reef. And these are things you don't have to worry about in the Atlantic. Once you no. push off from wherever, La Gomera, Tenerife, Morocco, you basically Portugal. Portugal. All you've got to think about is hitting land. That's your aim at the other side. Whereas in the Indian Ocean, you've got some dodging to do, um, and then you've got Reunion Island in the middle. So all of those reefs then create new microsystems of big currents, potential like storm conditions, lots of rain. Um, but yeah, the biggest thing is you get these big waves that come from really, really deep water into really shallow water. And then, yeah, potentially like boat breaking waves. Especially if you smash into a reef. Yeah. That's um, no so good for anyone. Or we had a really close experience. Or like ocean rowing, we're going at three knots. So this is all pretty easy. So can I backtrack yes. to how we got ourselves into this scenario? But so basically our aim was to go from Exmouth to Mauritius and we got stuck in a big storm that kept pushing us north and north and north and basically realized that we were never going to make Mauritius. We then had to make the decision, do we go past Mauritius to the north of it and then get towed into Mauritius? That would then be classified as an ocean crossing, but not unassisted. Yeah. Um, or we redirected and went up to the Seychelles and it's just we're four geography students we land up on the wrong island right <laughs> don't know how um i already had my girlfriend at the time was in mauritius my family were literally flying out that day we had to make that decision basically about 24 hours to say right either we go past mauritius or redirect up to seychelles and you'd been at sea for how long at this point been at sea for probably 45 days so we're pretty and we were li we were five days away from mauritius we were literally I remember you telling me, yeah, you were like, right, I'm going to have a fry-up yeah, for my exactly. burger and chips, and then I'm going to have lasagna. Yeah, it's literally getting girlfriends to s tell us what was on the menu. We're getting our orders in, rooms were booked to hotels. Like, we're down to, you know that feeling. When you're down to that final week, you're like, this is my final Thursday. This is my final Friday. Like, so pumped. And then it was the other phone call, right, well, you're not going to make it. So that's your choice. Let's go up to the Seychelles, because we were just arrogant and stubborn. Um, told all our families to go home and we'll probably be another 20 days. We didn't have the charts for the n essentially northern Indian Ocean. <laughs> so then we were, we're basically stuck in, but there was a long reef and in the middle of the reef was a little gap. And we were stuck behind this reef to get into the Seychelles. This is probably 500 miles away from the Seychelles. And another rowing boat, a guy called Levan Brown, who had a 12-man boat, he was doing the Indian Ocean. He had just gone over this reef and got a message to us just basically saying, don't do it. Like, And he said there were huge waves. They nearly broke the boat, or they think thought they had broken the boat. And basically said, just sit it out and wait. So then after this whole like, emotional roller coaster of redirecting, we're then stuck on power anchor five miles away from this reef. And we could see the waves, and they were they were big waves. It's kind of like that, those scenes of watching Jaws, um, the wave out in Hawaii. Like you can see these huge white rollers, and you're like, oh. so we were there for two, three days, just watching these waves, thinking, could we just surf down them? Like, what's the worst that can happen? And then, like, yeah, the worst that can happen is you break your boat in half, and you're yeah. stuck in the Indian Ocean. So, smarter thoughts <sighs> prevailed, but. However, people don't understand how frustrating it is on parachute anchor. Oh, it's the worst. And I was lucky. I was in a R25 solo, quite a big cabin by myself. Yeah. And it's still horrific. But even being by myself, there'd be mold growing, condensation. Yeah. And you try and, because you're laid down all day, you start to get a bit like, sore. You can't, you, so you sleep all day and then you can't sleep at night. Yeah. And it's just stuffy. You start cramping up because you're not using your body. Yep. So I put another person in there with you. Yeah, so we're we're in this boat, a roster, which is the bow cabin is literally a coffin. And I was stuck in there with a guy called Alex Simpson, who's six foot 
five, six foot six, 115 kilos. And I'm always the smallest in all my teams. I'm not that, like, I'm six foot. Like Angus isn't small either. Him <laughs> and I in a cabin was Anyone awful. Anyone listening. And we were openly very naked at rowing. But getting in the cabin then kind of felt a bit uncomfortable. <laughs> I remember waking up after, like, two days on Power Anchor, our small spoon, Simpo had his arm over me, he had his leg over me, and I just felt the effect of some ashwagandha or some <laughs> herbs that he was having. And I just thought, if this guy wants to take me, he, yeah. he can. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm so vulnerable. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that was my lowest moment on yeah. the Indian Ocean. Um, but yeah, being stuck in that and just, you, you, we'd listened to all our podcasts by then. We were bored of each other. We'd had some like issues with the team, not so much because anyone had done anything wrong, just we didn't want to be there anymore. Yeah. Um, anyway, finally got the opportunity to then, we basically found this small gap in between the reefs. And it was actually Charlie, the pitcher that I owed to this. Our weather router guy didn't, he was very professional, didn't want to like ask us to take a risk. We heard about this small gap and I rang up Charlie and said, look, Charlie, what do you think about this gap in the middle of the reef? And he was just like, I guess I'm not going to tell you to do it, but I would do it. I was like, yeah. that's all it takes then. Yeah. If you're going to do it, I'm going to do it. Um, I'm not scared. <laughs> you're scared. And then we went through and everything was fine. Um, but yeah, that's the difference when I was coming back to the, the going at three knots. Like these big sailing boats are going across the Indian Ocean. If you come across a reef and you're flying at 30 knots, like you're going to have some problems. Oh, Whereas yeah. if we hit a reef at three knots, we'd probably just bounce off it. Hopefully. <laughs> it's what most people worry about. In the Atlantic, oh, I've heard about these sunken containers. What happens if you hit a sunken container, right? You'll bounce off or you'll land up on top of it and you have to stand on the container and push your boat off. Are they even a thing? Because I, you hear, no, yeah, you hear about there's them. There's probably like 10 of them in the whole Atlantic. You're never going to hit one. One sailing boat hit one in the 1980s. Now everyone worries about it. But who knows? Like We said the same thing about Blue Marlins and now every year everyone gets a Blue Marlin yeah, attack. So maybe, maybe next year is the, the container year. My, um, my mama asked me, she was like, when uh, she was worried, she was like, yeah, but what happens if a, you know, a marlin strikes your boat and hits you in the leg? I said, well, mum, if it hits my um, femoral artery in my leg, I'll bleed out within seconds, so yeah. it won't matter if anyone's with me, because she was worried I was doing it as a solo. And another thing about the Indian Ocean, you don't know where you're going to finish. Yeah. Like you guys did, until you're halfway, because it completely depends on the weather. Am I correct there? Yeah. Um, there's quite a few, few teams talking about the Indian Ocean at the moment. Exactly. My advice to that is, like what you're saying just like find a good place to push off row as hard as you can we'll work out the finish line when you're halfway um that team that i was talking about leaving brown who landed up going to seychelles they were trying to go to mainland and they didn't know they were talking about going to south africa then they were talking about going to kenya i think then it was going to be madagascar then it was and basically changed finish location four times over a 50-day period um, obviously that makes it pretty expensive <laughs> to run a campaign like that but I'd almost do the same thing if I was rowing the Atlantic now if someone said to me it was like right I want to row the Atlantic I want to put a four man team together I want to go as fast as possible I'd say the same thing it's like push off from Gran Canaria or Lagomera wherever and we're just going to point the boat as fast as possible and we're halfway we'll let, I'll let you know if you're going to Montserrat, Antigua, Barbados whatever um, yeah I've got a, a two man team We've literally just left an hour ago going across the Atlantic and they're going to Barbados. But I've said to them, I was like, what's, what is the situation? If, if you land up going north, like, can I bring you into Antigua? Good advice. So you come back off that crossing. You made it to the Seychelles. So we didn't even talk about and But a real risk is pirates as well, isn't it? Yeah. So something I hadn't really touched on. Hamish is... Yeah, we're not forgetting <laughs> that. Let's talk about the pirates. Hamish's family owned Fortnum Masons. So that's how we got, ah, got Fortnum on board. Um so when we redirected from Mauritius, the one thing that Fortnum Masons and his family were most worried about was the fact that we were then kind of redirecting into pirate area. Um, so we, we had to make a whole load of phone calls to basically see, is it possible to have four people insured on an ocean rowing boat off Somalia? <laughs> um, and we did get insurance. My, um, my net worth was less than Hamish's um, premium. Happy <laughs> 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 with that. Yeah. 
Um, but basically, yeah, we got this insurance where if something were to go wrong, we had a special number we would have to ring off the sat phone and a boat and a helicopter and Foxy and Aldo would turn up yeah, with their yeah, guns. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, but we, so this is something I'd love to sit down with the, um, the guys from the Indian Ocean and talk about it. Because I remember this vividly and it's something that we haven't discussed since being on dry land. But we basically got told to go silent on AIS for a while. Um, so that meant that we could see other boats on our they charter, see you. but they couldn't see us. And we basically get messaged when to turn it on and off again. We had our yellow brick tracker, which is the tracker that everyone who rows across oceans uses, and that we took offline as soon as we redirected the Seychelles. So t people couldn't go on to our Fast Row West website and see our yellow brick tracker. It was only our weather router and knew where we were. Um, and that was all basically part of the insurance deal. And then there was a stage one night, I remember rowing, and we had gone silent, turned our um, our nav light off, no head torches on, AIS was on silent, and a boat was coming towards us. And you, could, in the Atlantic, you can tell when a boat is a professional boat, and you can see that it's got its port and starboard lights on, and generally heading in one direction. This boat had loads of weird lights in weird like weird configurations, and it was zigzagging around us almost as if it was looking for us. So we're all just like, cool, let's just really, really hush, keep everything really low. And this boat was literally circling around us for a couple of hours, not not within like t 20 meters, like couldn't see us, but within what looked like, like I don't know, a kilometer of us the whole time, circling around, zigzagging. In the back of our minds, we're automatically thinking pirates. Pirates, yeah. yeah. Could easily have been a local fisherman who just had a load of pots out there or something. Who knows? But the story's way better if we think it's pirates. Yeah, definitely it was pirates. Um, so, yeah, then I'm thinking, cool. Well, Hamish is the one whose family owns Fortnum Mason. So we obviously just chuck him overboard. <laughs> <laughs> say, say, take him. He's got all the insurance. Yeah. I am worth nothing. <laughs> so just leave me alone. Um, and we'll just finish as a three-man team. Yeah. Um, but luckily, it didn't come to that. It didn't come to that. <laughs> Literally, this FedEx 6 I've got, it's more worth more than me. Take that, <laughs> yeah. boys. We'll see you later. Um, but you made it and you were successful. And you obviously loved it because you were back out there. What yeah. was the time frame you finished the so Indian in? I had actually... Ocean Reunion as a campaign had already started. started. So I was already... with Me, Jack, Joe and Gus for the Atlantic had already put a team together. And we knew we were rowing 20... What was that 2015? And then I got approached to the Indian Ocean before. So I went, I had gone to Jack, Joe, and Gus and said, What do you guys think about me rowing the Indian Ocean? Jack was actually very honest. He's like, Look, I'm not that happy about you doing it because, firstly, what happens if you hate ocean rowing? Secondly, Gus and Joe weren't helping at all with the campaign. Really? <laughs> <laughs> like, actually, they were good. I'm only joking, boys, it, if you're listening. Gus was getting us fit. Joe was not doing anything and Jack was like I was the boat guy Jack needed me but Joe and Gus thought well look Angus isn't going to pull out of our campaign yeah. hopefully he's a good enough lad and yeah it gains him a whole load of experience that he can then bring to our, our row um, so anyway twisted Jack's arm and he let me do do the Indian and I remember I think it was the day after I finished the Indian I was in the Seychelles and I rang up the boys and I remember Jack being seriously nervous being like is this the time where Jack Angus says I'm nah. not doing it. One crossing out. Because I had rang them mid-ocean, just been like, boys, this is fucking tough. <laughs> like, Gus told me about that, and you boys were all like that. Oh, no. Because yeah. you watch all these videos. The finishing you, like, videos, you, yeah, yeah. But even the low moments, but you like dramatise them, you're like, cool, I'm almost looking forward to that. I think people who are interested in these kind of campaigns kind of like that kind of adrenaline. But it's not ocean rowing is not adrenaline. It's just like it's a, a slog. slow burn it's a grind. that hurts for long periods of time. So I remember ringing Jack and yeah, mid ocean. They were doing a fundraiser back home when I was middle of the ocean. I rang them on the fundraiser, being like, "Guys, this is really shit." So then when I rang them after the Indian Ocean, I think Jack was expecting me to pull out, and I was like, "Guys, can't wait to do it properly. Yeah. <laughs> can't wait." Um, and it was great. Like the Indian Ocean was. I'm glad I did it. We didn't. We we were cowboys, and then that meant that we could then do it much better much going better. across the Atlantic. But how many people have rode the Indian Ocean? 
I think there's only like 20 teams, 21 yeah. teams. So, and that's teams as well. So, yeah. So, there's a few, I think there will be a few solos in that. Uh, yeah, so like six solos. Yeah, not very many at all. No, Chris Martin, no. That man is like an encyclopedia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah obviously, not the lead singer of Coldplay. Um, <laughs> he would have it alphabetical. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he would know times, dates. So, we got the four man record, even though we didn't actually do it in the fastest time. So, we did it in 71 days, but because of our read, re- redirection to Seychelles, the Ocean Rowing Society basically do your it's distance divided by time. And because we did a whole load of distance because we got lost. Um, our average speed was the fastest. So we've got the four-man record across the Indian Ocean, which is ludicrous because we were slow. Obviously, you can't tell us the teams, but how many teams are you talking to that are looking to do the Indian Ocean? Um, three. Three. Ali. Do they need a extra bloke, do they? Um, one's no cocks on board in one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and then... I hope yeah. that's their team, though. <laughs> no cocks. Um, and then... Yeah, potentially. Yeah, hit me up. Yeah, because oh, after we've just talked about team dynamic, I'm like, yeah, throw me in. It'll be all right until you've done five days and you're like, oh, I hate everyone on board. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, the your second crossing, talking about team dynamics, absolutely nailed it. And perfect. Yeah, yeah. had an absolutely amazing crossing. We had great crossing. We definitely could have done stuff better, but I think I consider our ocean reunion year as like the transition period between ocean rowing being an adventure sport and then it turning into like an endurance sport. I wanted sport. to talk to you about this, yeah. Because um, back in the day, it used to be wild, like the Wild West, yeah, wasn't, yeah. wasn't it? It was, right. So you, a guy called Phil Morrison designed the Woodvale boat and you could buy the design off off him and you had, what was it? I think it's eight, four by two, ply, marine ply, and then you buy the design and you make this boat in your garage and you finish making it at the start line and you carry on making it as you're going across, basically. James Cracknell and Ben Fogel <laughs> yeah, exactly. literally doing large structural yeah. changes to their boat. So that that was kind of, when I call it ad- adventure, it's more like just like being badly organized. Yeah. And that's what made it an adventure, was working stuff out as you're going along. And then with Ocean Reunion, we were the first R45 year, so that's now like the most popular four-man boat um, don't get me wrong like, it's still an adventure and we still like stuff went wrong we had to fix them our water maker broke 24 hours before the start of the race and all these things but I feel like we were the first team to like start creating a blueprint on how to successfully row an ocean not saying that's because we did it so well but it was the start of Gus Barton who now trains a lot of the ocean rowers in the gym like trained me yeah, there you go yeah. he, he's he learned from Ocean Reunion like what we did wrong, like bicep curls and bench presses and all the best things for for an ocean. Arms row. and chest, forget <laughs> the rest. You yeah. need to look good with that flare in your arms. Exactly. Um, and then I learned a lot about the coaching and how to build the boat, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I feel like yeah, that was the transition year. But yeah, stuff still went wrong. But we just had such a good laugh. Like we we had a really fun campaign. We threw New Year's Eve parties for. 200 people which all the money went to our charities and stuff so it was all worthwhile but we yeah and then we did big fundraising ball which was a another boozy one we did really good rowing practice we did five a seven day row Sulcombe to London like I think we're the first oh. team to like do a proper long distance row as yeah. opposed to lots of 24 hour rows yeah. um, going out slapping the sole and coming back in yeah, yeah. exactly like we we did some yeah, I wa- that's what training. I wanted to do because remember we were chatting yeah because you literally saw my boat and that's what I planned but as a solo it's so it's, hard it's cr- really hard the conditions pretty much have to be perfect yeah because you can really get it and then logistically you then like, you've got to find somebody who's then going to take your trailer to the finish location pick your boat up take it back big like. shout out to my dad that picked uh, the car and the um, trailer up from Weymouth oh, when me and Doug rode so back so good so yeah. good and yeah, you shout out to Jardine Motors for the, for the dis- Land Rover Discovery lovely car yeah. Oh, mate. Too nice. I was gutted when I had to give that back. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I know what you mean. Because you see it sometimes in that documentary, the old way, you, oh, you just go out and, and there's certain coaches that are that are still, oh, yeah, th- things are going to go wrong. But if you're well prepared, not there isn't that much jeopardy. To go wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was what was so upsetting when 
so those who haven't watched the documentary or don't know the story, we were basically, we were the most prepared team there. We had done the most amount of miles. We had all of our funding in place. We had done well like with nutritionists and we were in a good position. And then 24 hours before the race, we went out, ran our water maker and the water maker stopped working. And I was thinking, okay, well, I've had this before. It's probably just changed the motor. So we ring up Jim McDonnell, who's a matrimony man. He knows everything about water The makers. wizard of the water makers. Yeah, he's, he knows it all. Um, and ran through the rewiring, rewired a motor. That didn't solve the problem. And then basically after troubleshooting everything, worked out that it was a membrane. And Jim said he had replaced like two membranes in his life in ocean rowing. Um, water makers like typical this is us 24 hours before the race so it's like Jim can you get a membrane down to us this is a Sunday evening he's in the UK like can you get on a flight literally we'll pay for you to get on a flight now to be with us tomorrow morning and then we can set off like two hours late he didn't have any membranes in stock I then remember looking over at a boat who had done the race the year before solo guy Finnish guy Swedish guy um, and he'd been out there for 48 hours, decided it was too tough, and then came back in. His boat was still at the start line. I went in and looked at his water maker. It was like, out of pure coincidence, it was exactly the same model as ours. Didn't even ask. I knew who the guy was. It's like, he's going to be fine with this. I'm just going to take his water maker part, <laughs> put my broken parts into his one, <laughs> swap them over. And this was like putting a water maker in. If you go to Rannoch, who are building a boat, and say, can you put a new water maker in? It takes them two days essentially to do the wiring and plumb it all in and we we're doing this 24 hours for the start <laughs> of the race like on a bit of a hangover <laughs> boat still in the water not really knowing what we're doing and get it all plumbed in at by like two o'clock in the morning ian couch race organizers or the um, safety directors then turns around and like cool i now need proof that this is going to be reliable enough for you to leave tomorrow morning so we then have to go out of the marina at two o'clock in the morning, go for a row, run the water maker for an hour, come back in. He, then he wants us to do that again. So suddenly it's like six o'clock in the morning. Race starts at nine o'clock. <laughs> We've now got no power in our batteries because we're running our water maker at, at night. night. Yeah, which is a big no. Well, not a big no, no, but it's a no, no. I yeah, never did it. And generally, as a four-man team, absolute no, no, yeah. no. You shouldn't. Yeah, you should be running it when you've got the the sun at its zenith, right above you, pumping power into the solar panels. Um, but I understand why Ian wanted, like, he didn't want to send us out there and then two days in realised our water maker was still not fixed. So I understand why he did it. People, my sister was actually in this race. My sister was just like, is Angus going to be in the race? Are they going to set off a day late? Are they going to set off a week late? Latitude 35, who are the team we were racing against? I think they were kind of licking their lips yeah. a little bit, being like, cool, well, this is great. Because there was a lot of hype around yeah, them, one the, the, the race was basically Ocean Reunion versus Lat 35. Two very different stories, two very different teams, but good attributes from both teams. And I think they were slightly happy that we are in this position. Oh, mate, as a competitive guy, I yeah. would have been like that, buzzing. Yeah, but this was what was, I loved though, about the Ocean Marine community. There was a guy called Shano. He was in a two-man team and he worked on super yachts. He should have easily have just gone to bed that night. And he was like, boys, I'm not letting you... Like, I, I know that Joe is incapable of helping you. <laughs> so... His Shano helped us all night. Yeah. And Gus are, probably uh, not that helpful either. <laughs> Gus is, I remember Gus is actually a very um Is he handy, is he? Yeah, he can be. Okay. Sorry, brother, it's if you're listening to this. Yeah. Um no, he was good. Jack was great. Um but anyway, yeah, we we got the problem solved and I remember walking down, we went to our hotel room like yeah, six o'clock in the morning, got a two hour sleep, packed our bags, and I remember walking down to the race tent. And we were two minutes late and it literally felt like Hollywood because everyone else is already sitting down and yeah. they're looking around like... Oh, An old spaghetti, really West, spaghetti Western. <laughs> yeah. The saloon doors yeah. fly open, the tumbleweed rolls yeah. in. And then Ocean Reunion There's you, walking, Gus, like, Jack. We're in, we're in. Um, oh. And the water maker didn't skip a beat for the rest of the crossing. Oh, amazing. Um, <laughs> what, but, mate, what are the chances of that, though, the day of the race? Oh, but thank God it happened then. That's yeah, the yeah. thing. Like, if that had happened two days later... Yeah. We'd have been hand, hand pumping hand the, whole, pumping, the yeah. whole way across. We probably wouldn't have won the race. Yeah. If you're uh, hand pumping as well, so a watermaker will make 30 litres a minute, um, 30 litres an hour. Yeah, on paper. And hand pumping does five litres. Yeah. And obviously Duncan, mate, he was hand pumping for what? 
50 days. 50 days? Yeah. Yeah, oh. it's crazy. Um, Doesn't even bear to think about that. <laughs> oh, my God. So, yeah, that that was kind of our biggest adventure. But And I'm, it's a great story to tell. And I'm kind of glad it did happen. Because actually, all my crossings, apart from missing the Mauritius and landing off the Seychelles, I've never had any like big technical problems. So I've never capsized. Um, I think I've had water makers play up, but and autopilots kind of misbehave. But that happens the whole time. Um, so having that kind of like deep stress for 24 hours and getting through, like I'm really proud as a team that we did that so well. See, I'm I'm the same. I'm obviously I've only done one crossing very long, but I didn't have too much go technically wrong on my boat like at all yeah they sh- it shouldn't um, it shouldn't because I was well prepared and if you don't have that jeopardy people are like oh, oh. But that's why I think uh, but coming back to talking about it it being an ultra endurance sport now yeah like there are these stepping stones I'm not saying you have to train with Gus and have to train with Dunk and whether it would be yeah. but generally speaking if you do follow that protocol yeah. you're going to get across and if you know your boat inside out, if you go and do like the Iranic electrician course, or if you just pull your, like you pulled your own water maker apart, didn't you? And put it back in. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. I think. Good to, what didn't I text you about it? Yeah. <laughs> Something, I was yeah. like, God, this is really hard. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's. <laughs> Big it's really sausage fingers in this. To do it because a lot of people just rely on their boat builder or the person they're buying their boat from to fix all the problems. And actually it's important for you to just to get to know your boat really well and what that means is 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 getting to know your boat when things aren't working like yeah. when a boat is, boat is working well it's pretty simple but you need to know like cool take the water maker apart put it back together and what do all those hoses actually mean what do all those power, like where where's the power coming from going to yeah um and that's something i learned this year i was working with team sharp and row who are awesome guys love them to bits and they were three navy seals and a u.s um marine and one of them had done the electrical course and there was definitely problems with the electrical wiring from the boat builder but all the training they had done was when the boat is going well yeah we hadn't put them in the scenario where right let's actually unwire all the batteries and put it back together ourselves yeah to make sure you actually know how things work yeah even then if something does break it's pretty simple to fix yeah like Rannick are very good at building a boat that is extremely fast but extremely quite simple, simple. yeah I thought that like when you do your Sparky's course down at Rannick I was like is that it yeah you know once is it Mick uh, there's Mike and Gary Mike that's it yeah Mike I was like is that it he was like yeah pretty much I was yeah. like oh sweet I guess I'll get on the road then yeah one solar panel attached to one battery yeah. one attached to the other all connected to the backbone Easy. You're definitely right, though, and I'm going to give Gus and Dunk a big chuck up and yourself. You know, Gus, I cannot recommend him enough. Yeah. If you're going to row an ocean from a physical training point, the progression I had as someone that's always considers himself fit, strong. At the start, he was like, "Yeah, got all this strength, but we need to put it down on the oars." He was great, and Dunk was was absolutely yeah. awesome. So if you put that prep in, and it's funny when I come back from the out, I come across and he trained me for that as well. My mate said, oh, was it hard? And I said, yeah, it was It was tough. But I said, "It's who would have thought it? You follow a well-structured, thought-out training program and you have the discipline to do every session. And turns out the day of the race isn't isn't horrific. Exactly. And it goes back to Ocean Rowing. If you train hard, you don't have those epics on the um, on the water. And speaking of epics on the water, this year a team capsized, didn't they? Yeah. Do you know anything about that or what happened and they had to get rescued? Because I think there's been a couple of good years. And when I say good years, everyone's got across. Yeah. Hasn't been too much jeopardy. And this year, I think it really highlighted that even if you are in the Talisker, it's not a slam dunk to say you finish. 100%. Um, firstly, just massively happy that the um, fight or die guys are uh, safe. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, I probably should have opened with that. It sounded like yeah, yeah. jeopardy. <laughs> they are um, safe. Yeah, Atlanta campaigns have got a really good safety record. I do sometimes fear exactly what you're saying. Like some people turn up thinking, "Cool, I've ticked all the boxes. I've done my pre-scrutineering. I've done my checks down in Lagomera. Ian Couch has looked through my equipment. I've had Jim look at my water maker. Therefore, I'm ready to row an ocean." And all of those things are just tick boxes. Yeah, and I think there's occasionally there are teams that haven't actually trained 
well enough to be out on the ocean. So you could do your 120, this is Olympic campaigns, and I didn't do this, I did in a, uh, an independent crossing, but you could do your 120 hours, which is mandated in the rules, on a lake. No, they've changed it. Oh, they changed it. But even I guess still, I'll take my head for a shit then, cheers. <laughs> no, but even still, you could go and do a 120-hour row in the Solent yep. on a flat, calm day, all in one go, and as a four-man team, and you could just row up and down the Solent, which can can be like a mill pond. Yeah. Or you could do it on the river crouch up and down over 120 hours and then you're done. Yeah. And I get it. Like Atlantic campaigns cannot hold your hand the whole way. No, they can't. So it's not really up for them. But th- yeah, there are a lot of teams who aren't training enough and you can overtrain. There's also the opposite. There are some teams that there was a team that lost their boat out in the North Sea because they saw there was a storm coming in and they're like well we're going to be rowing in storms in the Atlantic Let, therefore let's row in a storm in the North Sea well that's ludicrous Irisy sorry um, was that the they lost their boat because the wrecking yeah I'm not going to name any names no, oh yeah but yeah but, well they put it out on their social media so I'll name there, them there are two teams that did actually yeah. and so yeah you've, uh, there's a fine line you've got to you've got to do training in well you're never going to get ocean rowing conditions in coastal waters um, but that's when you're working. If you work with people like Dunk and I, and even Gus, like he doesn't know the front of the boat from the back, but he does know about being on a boat. Um, like listening to people like us who have we've spent not only of our own campaigns, but we have trained so many people that we kind of know exactly when is good quality hours and when isn't. Um, anyway, so back to these guys. Um, they're in a boat designed and built in the USA called Spindrift. And they had... Yeah, very unique design, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I think there's been two of them in the race. And fight or die, they're a, a military team raising awareness and helping um, military personnel with like, PTSD and basically getting them back off their feet after um, spending enough time in the military. And they put a team in every year. They've missed a few years. I think maybe they've done four crossings now really cool group of guys um and basically their boat caps i'm gonna caveat this there's a whole load of rumors in the ocean rowing world so who knows how much of this is true yeah um but some of it is from the horse's mouth um their boat capsized and these boats are designed to self-right straight away so within a ranikar 45 if you flip the boat over or wave flips the boat over the boat's going to flip back over within kind of five seconds max this boat didn't flip over and that's whether that's down to the design of the boat whether it's down to did they have the cabin doors open did they too much stuff on deck as well could could be weighted down wrong i don't know apparently the cabin doors were shut um so who knows what the reason is for that but anyway two guys were on on the deck two guys were in the cabins boat capsized didn't self-right so they then decided to get the life raft out get the life raft out and it starts disintegrating or doesn't inflate properly the four of them then get into the life raft after having to open up the cabin doors get two people out of the cabins get into the life raft they then realize the life raft basically hasn't been they've been told it's been serviced the service station have signed off as serviced but it hasn't been serviced and it starts disintegrating they let off their plb sorry epurb which is a uh, emergency position beacon that basically sends a radar um sorry a um satellite signal up to it would have been uh, the canary islands i presume from them and no one responds they then send off they've got another epurb they're so two epurbs they've got two they have one so as a race rule now you have one in your life raft grab bag one on the boat neither of them were reported as um, transmitting normally Atlantic campaigns would be told straight away as soon as one goes off Um, same thing with PLBs no one's responding but I didn't so mine went off didn't it completely by accident a fault again someone um, I took him to a I won't name the shop took him to get in to get serviced he literally overlooked that had a look over a I'd look at my PLBs and was like, yeah, they're in date, mate, so you're good yeah, to go. exactly. It's and ridiculous. I couldn't believe it. I was like, are you, no, 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 unscrew something or, yeah. you know, like put it in a machine. And I couldn't believe it. And shock horror. 
I should have bought one brand new. That's that would be but my even advice. brand new ones. I I've had brand new ones go off <laughs> in the middle of the ocean. I think there's a slight problem in that industry in that there's a lot of people that are buying these, this equipment. They're using it in coastal areas, therefore they they survive. So like ninety nine percent of them are fine. But yeah. you want one that's going to be one hundred percent accurate in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. Well, that was a good thing. At least mine went off and worked. Yeah. Big thank you to uh, the US Coast Guard, even though you weren't needed. So these guys, yeah. Boats upside down, they're in a life raft. Out of pure coincidence, a container ship's going past them and they catch them on the handheld VHF. So the the range on a handheld VHF, when you're, when you're sitting in a uh, life, life raft, raft. On the waterline. Yeah, maximum I'd say 6K. Like, Oh, that's perfect conditions, yeah. Yeah, you're lucky to get anything. Anyway, somehow track this boat down and then the boat comes by and then you've got to go through the process of getting four guys out of a life raft into a container ship which has got like 50 foot gunnels up a If anyone knows Max, Max Thorpe, yeah, have a story. look at his profile and his, that is up wild. Yeah, it's got to be the scariest thing that like I would, apart from this scenario where your boat is upside down, like I'd always rather stay in my rowing boat than get yeah. into a container ship even if I snap my leg. Yeah. Um, Anyway, they then redirect to Canada. They didn't realise that they hadn't got their passports in the grab bag, so they oh. get to Canada and they can't get off the boat. So then they're <laughs> stuck on ship in Canada after this whole ordeal, and their boat's still bobbing around in the Atlantic. And yeah. Hopefully we find out what actually happens. Hopefully the boat lands up on one of the Caribbean islands, we can have a look at it and find out why it didn't... Um, self-right. Self-right. But I know there's another boat of that design doing the Pacific in june and i really hope that they're, they're going to test, it, yeah, test yeah. On it and it it could well be nothing to do with the design it could be the weight but they've got to find out why because yeah. you, you, that that is terrifying and it, yeah we don't need something like that to happen yeah. and we're laughing but if your boat's just capsized i wouldn't think and i didn't keep my passport in my grab bag i wouldn't be thinking oh lads don't we grab the passports <laughs> yeah our literal life-saving boat is now upside down we're in a life raft that would be the last thing but it on should my be mind. in your grab bag okay yeah I'll my <laughs> that was my fault should be in my grab bag um mate tell us i've enjoyed chatting to you i just want to know what do you have planned for the future um so i had i really wanted to do something out in russia it's pretty hard to do expeditions in russia these days yeah yeah um, and that was going to be, but I'm going to say it because I don't think anyone's going to get to Russia soon. Um, so I wanted to cycle across Lake Baikal, which freezes over. Um, it's in out, Siberia, it's is out it? In Siberia, chance? yeah. Um, gets down to like minus thirty degrees. Um, and the ice is two meters thick. They put a train on it. Like it's pretty. It's, the reason I love the idea is because it's because it's a lake and it freezes. It's flat, so cycling it is going to be easy. Pretty nice. <laughs> yeah, get on the road bike. Um, but no, it, it's pretty wild. Um, thick ice, thick snow, big boulders, loads of different terrains. Um, I don't like cycling that much, or or on the erg. So <laughs> I'm sure you'll be absolutely amazing. I don't like it. the cold that much, but I kind of I love the technical stuff of expeditions. I I've got to that stage now with ocean rowing, like. I know these boats pretty much better than anyone in the world. Mm. I know how to make a boat go as fast as possible. And I love that. And I know about all the food and the equipment. I love that idea of taking it to a new expedition, maybe this late bike cow thing and being like, cool, I don't know anything about bikes. Let's learn everything that I need to know about. Like do the hydraulics freeze at that temperature and what tire pressure do you need for this and that? And um, I look forward to finding an expedition like that. Um, sadly, yeah, I don't think I'll be going out to Siberia anytime soon until <laughs> Putin croaks it or, or gets beaten <laughs> yeah gets yeah. beaten in Ukraine um, so at the moment I've got nothing else on so I'm just I'm training people I'm weather routing them um, and then I've got some corporate gigs going on doing some public speaking stuff but at the moment personal expeditions nothing and I find that start, hard starting to, to get a bit of an itch yeah like, um, Paris Marathon is the next big thing for me <laughs> yeah. which I'm, it's wild mate I'm actually I'm loving it because as you know, more so than most people are doing a solo row, like the training part, the physical training is only half of it. Like all the rest of it, like all the admin you have to do, the fundraising, 
that for me kind of took away the physical training the joy of some physical training whereas the paris marathon all i've got to think about is cool euro get the sneakers on yeah Yeah, what shoes am i wearing what gel do i need and the rest is cool i wake up in the morning i look at my true coach great gus has told me to do this go and do it and i can just enjoy the training on its own without Mm. anything else and actually gives me that headspace that i love and need to actually yeah i can put that into my business ideas and as opposed to thinking about oh, campaign shit, raising money logistics or getting the i used to do my really hard as a solo because it's all on you you know you're trying to manage your training manage a campaign and then you're putting on fundraising events and yeah then, and you your know, job be, yeah and your job and yeah, then people and a like, relationship yeah and your relationship <laughs> and you know i'm not a hermit you still want to go out with the boys yeah. every watch the footy watch a rugby and then trying to plan a fundraising event to make two grand, and you're thinking, is the juice worth the squeeze? Yeah, exactly. So I totally get why you're looking forward um, to them. And by the way, with the Paris Marathon, I've got a funny story. So I ended up running for Let's Get Kids Going, so it was mobility wheelchairs, okay. so amazing um, cause. And um, I've got a late entry, so I only had to raise 150 quid. And my mate was like, um, oh, lads, I've, I've squared us away. I've booked us accommodation. And we were like, do you want any money for this, mate? And he goes, no. And I was like, "There's a he's, why is he being so generous? We turned up to this street in Paris, one of the um, suburbs. And it was just like this. I was like, mate, where is this taking us? It was like something out of Men in Black. But he goes into the dodgy porn <laughs> yeah. shop that's full of aliens. We walk in, right? And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> there were just people. There's like a bed in the live, um, in the hallway. Oh, shit. Okay. And he's like, oh, this is our room. No no one's like welcomed us. Anyone could just walk in off the street. And I remember going in, I was like, I'll be top bunk. Because I remember uh, someone told me once, yeah, if you ever go to prison, top bunk's harder to hold you down if you're getting attacked. <laughs> <laughs> right? So all this top bunk, no quilt or anything. I've got like a little sleeping bag I've brought with me. I remember just staring at the door all night like someone's going to come in and murder us. Okay, <laughs> Literally right. woke up. Woke up, McDonald's breakfast and crack the, crack the Paris Marathon. So you're definitely right to get the Eurostar, mate, and enjoy it a bit more. But no, you'll have a, you'll have a whale of a time. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Luckily, Elsa, my other half, is half French, so her parents live out there. So I'll uh-huh. be staying in a house. Fantastic. <laughs> Je, je suis croissant. Um, <laughs> so, mate, I've been really, lo- I've loved this episode. And I could speak to you. You've got so many dits, mate. And that's why I enjoy um, sitting down having a chat with you, mate. But we have got to end. Yeah. I've got one final question for you, mate. All right. If you could give a young Angus Collins some advice, yeah, what would it be? Trust your mates. Trust your mates. Yeah, I'm a big. I like that one. You've got some great mates as well. Gus all over the physical yeah. training. But it, just like I always thought that you've got to try and work stuff out yourself, and I'm pretty British in that sense. It's like your problems are your problems. Don't don't let let them turn into somebody else's problems. And she. Your mates are, or I'm very lucky. I've got some great mates, and whether it's business, personal problems, or just general chit chats, like your mates are fucking cool. Yeah. So just, yeah, trust them. Trust your mates. And there we go. That is the end of today's episode, guys. If you've enjoyed, please could you follow, like, subscribe, as it really helps grow the podcast. Thank you for listening. Angus, mate. Cheers, man. Awesome. Loved it.